Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Marie Schwartz from the organization Teen Life, a source for summer programs and more. Today, we'll be talking about programs with January deadlines and why summer programs are helpful for your student. I'll then be discussing what to do if you've been deferred from an early action or early decision um, college application with Tova Tolman, former admission officer at Barnard and other colleges. But first, I'm welcoming Tara Piantanita Kelly, who I probably mispronounced her name. She can correct me in a moment, to discuss the importance of advising and keeping college costs down. Tara is one of our finance specialists here at College Coach. Welcome. Hi, Sally. Thanks. And actually, you did a good job on the name, Tara. Piantanita Kelly. Very good. <laughs> okay, good, good. I tried. I tried really hard. So I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate knowing that. <laughs> All right. So... So let's just start with this. Why is advising important when factoring in college costs? I mean, obviously, you want to communicate with a financial aid office. You want to talk to a finance person. But I think here you're talking about college advising. So why is that important? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, parents are, you know, they're, they're very diligent about putting their, their money aside to pay for college. And they're like, okay, um, we're, we're going to get a four-year degree. Uh, we're only going to go to college for four years. I know how much each college costs per year. So times four, that's what it's going to cost. Um, but that is actually not how it often ends up. Um, it's very common for students to take more than four years of full-time study to achieve a bachelor's degree. And anything beyond that four years, you know, the parents are going, wait, I, I ran out of money. I only planned for four years. What, what happens now? Well, you know, that fifth year isn't free. <laughs> you know, it, it can cost as much as or more than the, the previous years, depending on uh, how many credits the student has to take. So, um, so like, I'll, I'll kind of give you a, for instance, like a, an example. If uh, a bachelor's degree is measured uh, in semesters, it's pretty common for the student to have to complete 120 semester credit hours to complete their degree. That's kind of standard usual. Um, but the minimum number of credit hours that a student needs to be enrolled in to be considered full-time is only 12 credit hours per semester. So if they do 12 credit hours per semester, they're going to take 10 semesters to complete those 120 credits, and that's five years. That's, you know, essentially 25% more than the four years that they had planned on. And that, you know, that can be expensive. Right. So sometimes students don't realize that the minimum number of credit hours is uh, <laughs> is not actually what you want to do. You want to sign up for more. Sometimes something happens and you have to drop a class. But in general, you want to sign up probably for the maximum that you can take. Yeah. If if you can if you can do that, I mean, if if the student is is academically capable of doing that, um, that would certainly be beneficial. Absolutely. And students can even you know if they do that graduate a semester early or maybe even a year early. That's a big saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually spoke with someone who saved a uh, graduated, I think maybe even a full year, a full uh, three semesters early by loading up on credits, taking the most she could take without paying any extra. Um, and yeah. uh, she, she, she was... You know, and, and for her, she was completely able to handle it. For some students, that wouldn't work. But, um, you know, I think it's a good thing to try out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some schools, it, it's pretty common for a school to essentially charge a flat rate for tuition once the student is taking at least 12 credits. So it's, you know, a per credit cost for, you know, 1 through 11 units. And once they get to 12 units, anything from 12 to 18 credits is the same price. So why not get, you know, if you're, again, able to do it academically, um, why not take those extra credits? You, you're essentially getting them for free. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So we've already given someone a tip of how to, like, maybe shave some time off of college. But why do students sometimes attend college for more than four years? I mean, you've already given us one where maybe students are taking the minimum 
Um, but are there other reasons why sometimes students might need to be in college for more than four years? Um, well, it's, it's very common if a student, uh, let's say, transfers programs, uh, they might lose some, some credits in that. If they transfer schools, they can lose some credits. Um, if they add an additional, um, you know, major on that requires some additional credits. I mean, those are legitimate reasons why a student, you know, might take a, a little more time. But, but I'll give you um, another for instance. I have a daughter who's now in grad school. But when she was um, an undergraduate, I said, okay, you know, th- we took a look and, and I said, uh, take a look at how many credits it's going to you're going to need in order to achieve your your degree, and it was about 120. And I said, how many? Um, if you divide that by eight semesters, four years, how many credits you need to take in in each semester or, or achieve, not just take, but actually complete in each semester to get done in four years? Because that's all I'm coughing up for is four years, just so you know. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. she realized she had to take 15 credits per semester, or she had to achieve complete. 15 credits per semester, and she did this, she, she transferred schools in the middle of her freshman year, she added uh, an additional major in her sophomore year, and she still completed her bachelor's degree at a public school where sometimes those classes can be impacted and hard to get into. She still completed her degrees in, in four years. So it is mm-hmm. absolutely possible, even if you do transfer schools, you know, change programs. You just have mm-hmm. to be diligent. Mm-hmm. All right. So we know we know what students can do, but what about um, how can someone know if a school is good about graduating their students in a timely manner? Oh, actually, that that's a great question. That that is public information. Believe it or not, every school is required to report their graduation rate to the Department of Education, and the Department of Education has a website called College Navigator. Every school is on there. Every school in the U.S. is on there. And you can look up every school's graduation rate. So, um, for instance, Harvard's overall graduation rate is 97%. And that sounds great until you see that the overall graduation rate is based on students completing their four-year degree within six years. So 97% of Harvard students complete their four-year bachelor's degree within six years. If you look at their four-year graduation rate, it's 86%. So that means that 14% of their entering class is going to take longer than four years to complete their bachelor's degree at Harvard. So so I just told you what their six-year completion rate is, 97%. Do you want to guess what the national average six-year graduation rate is for a four-year degree? you want to take a guess? Well, I, I actually know that it's quite low. I remember hearing that it was around 40%. Yeah, well, actually, the, the six-year graduation rate is 59%. The four-year graduation rate is oh. under 40%. So that means six out of every 10 students who start a bachelor's degree, they're not going to finish it within four years, 60%. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, taking a look at, at the school's graduation rate um, could be one indicator of how good a school is at actually graduating their students. Mm-hmm. I do want to put in a minor plug, though. I had I had multiple stu- uh, friends in college who took a year off in college. So if you looked at their four-year graduation rate, it wouldn't have looked good. But they weren't actually paying tuition for the five years. You know what I mean? For the five years be- between when they matriculated and when they graduated. So yeah. I, I don't know if there's any way to capture that information. Probably not. Right. That, and, and you're absolutely right. There are uh, students who stop out for whatever reason, um, and that doesn't technically add to the, the cost of, of the, the program. So, yes, they don't complete their four-year degree in four years, but they're not paying for an, a fifth year or a sixth year. They're just, they stepped out. Um, also, some schools uh, have co-ops that are built into their four-year program, which means that the student actually graduates in, with their four-year degree in five years, that's built into the program because they do two semesters of co-op. Again, that and the students are actually earning money during the co-op, so it doesn't cost them more, um, even though they don't graduate in four years. So there are mm-hmm. some, you know, legitimate reasons where a student won't complete a four-year degree in four years, but it doesn't cost them extra. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I think that the, um, I think that the, you know, the stats that you mentioned are still useful because you know if that number is really, really low, that there's something going on and it's not just a legitimate reason, probably. So people should take a look at that. Right. 
So, so if, let's say I, I'm talking with a family and they, they say, oh, you know, we're looking at this particular school and I take a look at the school's graduation rate and I see that it's on the low side, um, I just say, you know, it just need, means that your student needs to be more diligent and I'll give them some tips on what the student can do. I mean, actual solid tips so that um, the student has a higher likelihood of graduating on time. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so just one last question. Are there any other payment ramifications for students who take longer to complete their degree? Um, yeah, absolutely. There, there certainly could be. Um, but first, I, I, you know, I kind of, I, I mentioned the tip, and, I, and then I didn't tell you what it was. So I do want to tell, tell you what tip that is. That the the number one tip for for parents who do want their kids to graduate in four years, um, and that oh. is to um, when the student meets with their advisor every semester to to set schedule their classes. That before they do that, they should go to the re- school's registrar's office and ask for something called a degree audit for themselves. It'll tell, they'll get it right from the registrar's office. It'll say, say which classes they've taken, which classes they still need to take, and then they can bring that to their advisor and use that as a roadmap to plan uh, their next semester and and, you know, and subsequent semesters. Um, so that's that's the tip that that all parents should make sure that their kids are doing. But as far as the ramifications, the financial ramifications of spending extra time, um, let's say the student received a merit-based scholarship or some kind of scholarship from the school. Oftentimes, that scholarship is renewable only for four years. So if the student goes beyond four years, that scholarship isn't there to support them anymore. Um, also, if the student is receiving federal financial aid, like the federal Pell Grant or federal student loans, those have limitations as well. And it's possible to run out of the Pell Grant and still not have completed your degree. And there are also some aggregate limits on federal student loans at the undergraduate level that the student can't go beyond. So, you know, getting in there, getting your degree um, in a a timely manner um, is really the best possible strategy payment-wise. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tara. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, everyone, we're going to take a short break, but when we're back, um, Marie Schwartz from Teen Life will be joining me to discuss summer program. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, now Marie Schwartz from Teen Life is joining me. Welcome, Marie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming on the program. So I want to kind of, I want to dive right in. What are some of the reasons that a student might want to attend a summer program? 
you know, like, I mean, we, I want to go over this in more detail um, throughout the program, but I thought maybe you could introduce it. Like if you had two minutes to convince someone that a summer program was a good idea from an, you know, on an experiential level for the student, you know, I'm not talking about getting into college or anything like that, but just on an experiential level, what would you bring up? Well, um, I think there's a statistic that says students only spend a third of their life uh, in a year in school. So the other two-thirds, obviously, is spent sleeping, but um, also learning in different ways. And the reason I like to speak about this topic so much is that there are, there are real gaps in today's uh, young people who, when they come to the workforce, don't have the soft skills that employers are looking for. And maybe it has to do with the amount of digital um, media they consume. You know, it could be that. It could be that our parenting style is too intense and and students don't know how to think independently. I mean, their fingers have been pointed at a lot of different reasons. But what's, what's, you know, what's startling is that most employers in surveys will say, you know, I can't find students who have these, these, these core life skills, soft skills that I'm looking for. So I would, I would, I always recommend to parents to be very strategic about, um, you know, not just doing this or that, but thinking about a four-year, say, a four-year plan while the student is in high school, and looking at both in school and out of school activities as, um, in terms of what kind of skills are they building. And so uh, summer programs can really supplement what's not being offered in school. There are lots of programs that help a student explore careers that they would never normally encounter in school or their parents aren't in those fields. Um, there are programs, you know, the fact that summer programs don't aren't graded means you can also take risks and, and jump into programs that you know nothing with topics that you not, know nothing about and not worry about the outcome. So the, I think the summer programs actually are the best of both worlds because the, the ones that are designed for teens are, are really intended to uh, be transformational. And there's, there's, you know, it's really the pleasure of learning as opposed to the chore of learning. So I, I'm happy to, you know, answer this more concretely, but there's, there's value in supplementing your child's education with out-of-school summer programs in, in key areas. Okay, well, that's a wonderful response. Um, you know, and I especially like what you said, that students can take risks. They're, this is not being graded, so it's really just they can absolutely take a risk and try something that they might not be good at, and I, I think that's yeah. really wonderful. So yeah. So just because I know some people, I want to get some of the practical information out of the way before we return mm-hmm. um, to this particular topic of kind of some of the deeper whys of why someone might want to do this. But what are, are there some summer programs that are sort of more selective and they might have earlier deadlines like in January? I mean, are there, are there programs that we need to give parents and students a heads up about so that they can get started working on those applications now or, or mm-hmm. very soon? Well, very few um, summer programs sort of sell out, you know, as quickly as you might think. Um, there are some academically oriented programs, I would say, on, say, on college campuses, which only accept a certain number of students because they, they're looking for students who are passionate about something. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a financial aid component where there's a limited amount of financial aid and you, you know, you should apply early in order to, to get access to that. But generally, there's, I wouldn't, I mean, there's a handful of, of programs that sort of tout themselves as being super selective, but it's not the norm. And I wouldn't worry about it, honestly. But I would, what I would do is start looking in January because it, it's important to, to, to have, a, you know, maybe three or four or five programs that you're considering and talking to parents and students who attended those programs in order to make your final decision. Um, but as a general rule, you won't have any trouble getting in. It's not like, um, I think, parents of younger kids sometimes get caught up in, in sold-out situations. But generally speaking, if you're prepared to go to an overnight program, you'll have, you know, you'll have, you'll be able to get in as late as May. So unless you're applying to be, you know, a new, a, neurobiology uh, internship 
thing that's part of a, a internship program or something like that, you you don't need to worry about you know missing missing applications miss, missing mm-hmm. application deadlines. Okay, and I think that guideline about um, you know programs that do offer a considerable amount of aid or maybe are lower cost, those probably would be ones that would sell out a little sooner. But yeah, most yeah. most most programs are are open as you said until quite late. Exactly, and especially if you're prepared to travel and get on a plane, I think that's the, you know, the the, the world is quite open, and, and most of them have excess capacity. I would say, you know, they don't sell out. It's like five to twenty percent of spaces sometimes remain, and that's what we specialize in trying to help them fill. Because you know they're they're small organizations. They're run by educators typically, and they're not super. You know they're not spending a huge amount of money on marketing. So they'll take they'll they'll be very flexible. Sometimes you can actually negotiate um, a lower rate if you do sign up late, and they have you know a couple spots left. They're they're more likely to be flexible on the price. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, mm-hmm. So how how young? Do you think it's good for parents to start thinking about summer programs? Um, you know, are there sort of different ages for different programs? I mean, you mentioned getting on a plane. Obviously, you know, I think most parents are probably going to want to wait on that. But so when do you kind of really start encouraging people to think about some of these summer programs? So, you know, again, it depends on your child. Um, I, I would say the middle school years are excellent for building social skills. And confidence, that's sort of the age when a lot of students, uh, you know, drop whatever interest they had before they were teenagers. Uh, they stop playing an instrument. They stop playing a sport. And um, they, you know, it's important to, like, I have a nephew who, who's now in, in high school. And when he was in middle school, you know, he just felt self-conscious and this and that. So th- that's very, very common. So I would look for, if in middle school, I would start looking for things like, um, outdoor adventure programs, any, anything where they're taught leadership and, and given sort of the, the rope to, uh, to, to make decisions. I would, you know, do things that are very um, fun, I guess, you know, whether it's acting or, or designing something or art programs. Those kinds of skills really help uh, middle schoolers to develop confidence. Also, community service programs are great. So try to find something local for your middle schooler. Uh, it could be on a college campus, um, and commuter rates, um, you know, are, are less onerous. But the, the, the colleges usually cater to the high schools, but some of the private schools will have summer programs. So, so that, 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 that's what I would recommend. Now, once they go into ninth grade, I tell every family that, that asks um, that they should – their child should spend at least two weeks living on a college campus before they before they graduate from high school. So whether it's next door, around the corner, you know, 30, 50 miles away or, or, or on a plane, living on a college campus is an excellent way to introduce your child to what they, what they will expect. Um, and they also will be able to write about it. And think about it when they're when they're applying for college. They'll have something visual to think about. It also those college programs are excellent for career exploration. So if they're thinking about becoming an architect or thinking about becoming an engineer, and that's not something that they're able to explore in school, these are great ways to both you know either confirm or rule out certain majors before you spend a lot of money on them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's probably my biggest, you know, my biggest piece of advice is please help your child do some career exploration before they apply to college. Mm-hmm. I really heartily second both of what you said. And I, I think that parents sometimes underestimate the importance of having their child spend some time away from home um, under someone else's roof, um, you know, before they go off to college. I mean, you know, we yeah. all of us. On my side of things, you know, I used to work in college admissions. Since then, I've been working in college counseling in one way or another. We all have examples of students who go away from home and really just freak out. You know, they thought they were ready to go, um, you know, across many states and thousands of miles. And it really turned out that they weren't. So uh, one of the best things is that two weeks or maybe even six weeks someplace else 
um, just yes. to kind of test out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Two weeks is kind of the minimum. I think also they they are thrown together with kids that they didn't did not choose. Like I wouldn't necessarily send your kid your child with a friend. I think it's better to go solo. And once they get there, you know, they may have a roommate or somebody that they, they don't know. And I think this is all excellent because our our children are growing up, you know, only sort of hanging out with people they know or people they choose to, to, to be with. So it's, um, I think that one of the biggest learning experiences you can have is to get along with a group of people who are very different from you are, from from, mm-hmm. you, from yourself or who have, you know, who come from different areas, and that's that's really what college is. I mean, once you go to college, you're going to be in that environment, you know, in a much bigger way. So you might as well get started now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I worked yeah, with a student so- who did. Um, I guess it's called Boys Life, or he did some sort of. Um, he did a camp. I'm forgetting which one it was, and he was very liberal, and he was you know, rooming with someone who was highly conservative. And it really made him think about how to reach people and work with people um, yep. who were very different from him. And it was a, you know, it didn't change his viewpoints, but it made him realize, it made him think carefully about how to be respectful of those different viewpoints while still remaining true to your own, which I thought was yeah. wonderful. Well, and, and most workplaces today are incredibly diverse. So, you know, unless you're in a state where there's not, not much uh, cultural difference. I mean, we live in Boston, and it's just amazing how diverse it is. So, yes, being able to get along with people and reading social cues, speaking to them face-to-face, you know, resolving conflicts, negotiation, those are all skills that you learn when you go on these summer programs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I want to highlight here is that you learn these skills just as much, I mean... uh, if it's not a traditional classroom model. And I just want to stress that because I talk to a lot of parents who think that summer programs should automatically be a traditional classroom model or it's not as valuable. And I like Mm -hmm. to stress that that's not true because you can build these other skills in a variety of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, please. Sorry. No, sometimes the programs will have um, an internship experience built into it. And sometimes people say, well, why do I have to pay for my kid to have an internship? And I say, look, internships are not um, situations or experiences where your child has the skills to do the work. You know, a job is, a, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an employment uh, mechanism, and, and it's for people who have the skills to do the job. But internships are not, and so you're relying on, you know, on someone's willingness to, to teach someone. Um, and so programs have to exist you have to pay to, to, to have an internship because of the all of the setup that's involved in getting the employers and then working with the students to make sure that they have a good internship experience. But I think internships generally are an excellent way to learn uh, experientially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's let's go through some of the the types of skills that. Um, that sure. parents are going to want to help their children build and programs that would help with that. So, like, let's start with communication skills, which I think mm-hmm. people are like, well, I can talk, so that's a communication skill, but that's obviously not, uh, you no. know, as a, you, you obviously need it on a pretty deep level. So what are some examples of programs that might build communication skills? Yeah. Well, this is something that can happen in school also. So if a school has a Model UN program. A model UN is, is where students um, get divided up by country, and then they take a point of view that that country has, and they debate with other countries. And um, that's something that my son's school had. And But I know that you can also just attend model UN over the summer. They, there's something called the Model, model UN uh, Summer Institute, where students who, you know, are interested can can engage in these kinds of debates, basically. And that's that I've heard that Model UN students are, are you know, are definitely a notch uh, better at communicating after after such an experience. Another one is, is acting. I mean, people, face-to-face communication seems to be what employers are looking for more than, say, I mean, written communications is important because, as we all know, email is, is rampant. So you have to be able to write a good email message and, and memos and things like that. But face-to-face communication, I think, is the skill that has been most affected by digital media, by social media especially. 
So being able to look someone in the eye, shake hands, you know, anything that involves working with the public. Um, I think jobs can be like that, where, where if you're working at a restaurant or a snack bar or something like that, uh, or in a supermarket. But the types of programs I would definitely steer you toward if, if you felt your child needed communication is something that involves a lot of oral expression. Mm-hmm. So debate, speech and debate could work as well. Yep. I love the notion of theater, though. So theater is good for you even if you're not thinking about being a theater major. Yeah, I, I actually have a good anecdote. My, my, I have two sons, and one of them went to Lehigh, and we had a tour once of the uh, arts building, and they were practicing and rehearsing a play. And afterwards, we talked to the students about why they were doing this. And one said, well, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm majoring in engineering, but I'm going to have to you know, uh, present my ideas. And if I don't know how to present my ideas, I won't be successful. So he viewed it as a skill building. You know, he loved acting, but he, he, he looked at it in terms of his career and felt it would help him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful example. Um, mm-hmm. What about, like, what about teamwork skills? What are some examples of programs that might work with that? Yeah, so teamwork, uh, a lot of kids say, well, I'm getting teamwork, you know, on my sports team or something like that. But this is different. This is working with people who are who have very different skills and abilities. So there are a lot of community service-focused programs where a, a group might get together and build something or, you know, run a literacy program. And these are not one-on-one. I mean, they're not, you know, these are community service programs where kids sign up, you, you pay a fee, and there's room and board and so forth but you actually go out and do something together. And th- there's a common goal, but everybody may ha- may play a different role on the team. So that's probably my my you know my best advice for for team building. The other would be again doing some kind of dramatic production where many hands are needed to complete something. So it's not computer programming, it's not, you know, there's some there's some other really valuable programs that, but they don't really rely on the team making something happen. Mm-hmm. So what about, what about a student who is, you know, certainly a diligent student, but just but really could use some help in being creative, you know, maybe allowing yep. themselves to be creative or kind of teaching them creativity. Well, so I would approach it a number. There's a number of different ways to help a student be creative. I was just looking at, for example, a bunch of programs that involve entre- entrepreneurship. So if, if you go to teamlife.com and type entrepreneurship, you'll get several responses of programs where you be- develop a business. So that's one type of creativity. There's lots of arts programs, both performing, you know, visual, um, music. Um, I mean, those, unless it's like choreography or composition, I, I think choreography and composition, building, writing your own score and so forth, that's, that's the creativity I'm talking about. And then there's engineering programs where you're building something and you're, you know, creating a robot or a, um, a building, you know, um, sketching and learning how to use architectural software to, to design a building. Anything like that where there are projects that don't have a, a right answer, <laughs> where students... Um, learn, you know, and then, and then come up with, with the idea, whether it's, yeah, whether it's a new business, a new product, a new design. Um, Those are all wonderful programs. It sort of just depends on what part of the creativity spectrum your, your child is on. So, so we only have, um, we only have about a minute left, but what about programs that build cultural awareness? Is there any, any particular programs Mm -hmm. that come to mind there? Absolutely. There are quite a few really, really interesting travel-related programs where your child goes overseas. And you can pick third-world countries, you can pick, you know, European countries, you can, you can be on a boat, you can be on a farm. Yeah, the point is getting out of your comfort zone and going somewhere completely different. Um, I think these are many, many, uh, many students have kind of come back from trips like that completely transformed because they realize that, you know, they're living in a much bigger world. 
and the other world out there looks incredibly cool. You know, it might be the first time they get a passport. And based on what I've seen, these types of programs are probably the most transformative. And, Mm -hmm. you know, meeting other cultures and, again, so that when they go to college, this isn't the first time they've they've met someone from another country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was, Marie, that was extremely helpful. Thank you so much. Great. You're welcome. All right. Every, <laughs> we're going to take a short break, and then I'll be talking with Tova Tolman about what to do now that you've been deferred from your early action or early decision college. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, I'm welcoming Tova Tolman to discuss what to do if you've been deferred from an early action or early decision school. So welcome, Tova. Thanks, Sally. It's good to be back. (laughs) So first of all, I just want to say, if you have been deferred, I am sorry because I know that being deferred can be very, very stressful. But Tova and I are here um, to help you to help you out. So, Tova, what are the next steps that a student should take if they've been deferred from a college that they really do want to attend? Obviously, a college that they don't really want to attend, you don't need to worry about, but a college that they really do want to attend. Sure. And, and I think step one, as you know, as you said, might be a little bit disappointing, but right away, if possible, to try to you feel a little bit good about that, to remember that, you know what, I could have been denied, and this is the college's way of telling me that they want to take a second look, that I'm in the running. If they had no intention of admitting me ever, they would have gone ahead and denied me. So in, in many ways, this is not terrible news, and in many ways, it's good news. It means you're in the running, especially at a highly selective school. In many ways, it should eventually, after the initial sting wears off, feel a bit like a pat on the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. There are schools. I mean, Stanford is notorious for denying people right and left who apply early. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. once that, uh, you know, once you get past that initial sting and you're able to recognize, okay, you know what, it means I'm still in the running, uh, I think the, the next actual practical step to take is to do a little bit of re- reevaluating of your current list. Look at the remaining options that you haven't yet heard back from. Are any of them too... 
uh, you know, is, is your remaining list a, a bit too top heavy? Are they all reaches? Was this the school you were counting on as your first shore safety? Oh, I know I'm going to get in there, and now all of a sudden you're deferred. Does anything left else remain on your list that? you can count on. If not, it might be a good time to reconsider adding one more uh, no-problem school, one more school where you can count on getting some good news just to make sure that your remaining list isn't too top-heavy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do just want to stress, though, that if you knew this school was a reach li- was a reach from the beginning, you don't need to right. panic because you didn't get in. But, yeah, if you thought it was a just right, you know, kind of a mid-range school, if you thought it was a safety Adding in another one of those is is absolutely a good idea. And I do okay. want to make sure people know, by the way, we had a show, I think it was on November 23rd, about regular decision school lists. And so we actually talked about this then. Um, so I wanted to revisit it here, but people should absolutely go back to the archives if they want a deeper discussion of kind of how to balance the list um, in the regular decision time. So... Um, what else should a student be doing? Like if this is a school that they're really interested in, you know, what kind of follow-up should students take um, with the sure. admission office? Uh, it is, might sound obvious, but read the defer letter carefully. I think so often you read the first sentence, uh, the congratulations, or oh, we regret to inform you, or this you know, language about the fact that what your decision is, and then you stop reading. So once the dust is settled, go back and read that letter carefully and look to see what they are asking for. What sort of follow-up do they want? Are they asking for some sort of additional information? Are they offering any uh, information as to perhaps why you were deferred? Some schools might be willing to share that if you call if you're curious, uh, usually they're, they're going to give you a pretty vague answer about how it was a very competitive pool. But it's possible you might get a candid officer on the line who says, you know what, we'd really love to see your senior year grades or another writing sample. Uh, and that is something that your guidance counselor might be willing to help with as well. And you can check in with your guidance counselor and ask uh, what their relationship is with that college are they regularly talking with that college? Might they offer any additional insight too? So reading that letter carefully to see what additional follow-up is required is going to be key. Mm-hmm. And I do want to stress again that, you know, I worked at schools that would tell students what they needed to do to get in and stud- and schools that wouldn't really, other than being vague, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, in no case, though, did it hurt the student to make a polite inquiry, Right. Just to say, is there anything you can tell me? It never hurt them. And in the case of the school, like at Whittier, we'd be pretty direct with students about what we needed to see. And, you know, I was happy to share with a student, look, you need to bring up your grades. That's the that's usually that was it. That was the long and the short of it. Like you need (laughs) to get better grades this semester. And then I would be thrilled to admit you. And so, you know, absolutely. I just want to emphasize that again, that you should follow up with it. Um, Uh, All right. Anything else that a student can do? You know, I'd say in terms of follow-up, and you mentioned if this is a school that you really care about, I I think it can be really helpful to write that college, uh, what we here at college would call a love letter, or a, hey, I'm still really interested in here's why type letter. One of the first things that I would do at um, all the schools I worked at when we went back to reevaluate the deferred students, I'd I'd flip to see what is new. What have they sent in since we last made this decision? What new information do I have to utilize here? And I loved seeing some additional information from that student about their interest in the school. Give me an update on what's going on in your life and how does that relate to my school? And we have some some guidance on our blog as to different things you might want to include. Uh, I don't know, Sally, if you've mentioned it earlier, but we do have a great blog post on this very topic, the sort of the, you've been deferred, now what? And uh, we have some tips about what to include in that letter. I think it's important to keep your tone positive, uh, offer something about, again, your extended interest. If they didn't have a sort of some sort of why this college supplemental essay, that would be a great thing to include. What is it about that school? Why are they your first choice? Why are you so excited to attend that school? Sharing that kind of information can make all the difference when everything else is equal. We want the student who's most excited about us and who's most likely to attend. So giving me that information can be really helpful as we're going back and looking at the rest of your information.
information, again, with the context of the larger regular decision pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I, I can't stress that enough because in the schools that I worked at, the love letter was also really, really important. And I also tell students, for example, if this school is your first choice, then mention it in the letter and mention it to begin, you know, mention it at the beginning. Um, and then you've already mentioned having a, a strong tone or positive tone. I want to go even farther and say something that will be obvious to some students, but not to others. Um, if you're deferred, this is not the time to complain that you were deferred. Mm. Like, don't say, no. <laughs> I was so disappointed to be deferred. Instead, say, thank you for the opportunity to have my application reevaluated. Um, I, 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 I just, many students, this will seem obvious, but I've had to tell multiple students, this is, no one likes to have someone complain to them. Right. And then... You know, keeping that in mind, if we are going to call it, you know, a, a love letter, you know, sounding like a bitter, uh, rejected uh, student is, isn't going to serve you well. Um, and also, don't send this the day after you get your decision. Sit on it a little bit. Let the other decisions start to come in. Take your winter break. Uh, reflect a little bit on what has changed since you hit, first hit that application submit button back in when? September, maybe a couple of months have probably passed. And I recommend not sending this letter uh, or, or your update in general until really February. I think is plenty of time. That's about when the offices are going to pick back up the deferred candidates, unless they have guidance in the letter about, in that decision letter about when they want updated information by. In our blog post, we make it really easy for you. We're calling this a love letter, and we say you should send that to the colleges right around February 14th. It's a good day for love letters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some students will ask, why not do it sooner? But I, I completely agree with that timing. I mean, and, and for one thing, maybe you've got some additional good news about yourself to report. I mean, sometimes students have accomplishments, um, you know, that, that have come along after that they've earned after they submitted that regular decision application. They might not know about it till January. So February 14th will work better. Um, and then, you know, I think people don't realize how admission offices work either. Just because your file is there doesn't mean it's going to be read instantaneously. They will read the regular decision applications before they go back to the deferred application. So I think that is important to note. Sure. And, and really essential for the admission officers. So many, so much of the reason behind why a student is deferred is quite often, quite frankly, is they need to see what else is coming. Uh, we're not quite sure how strong the overall pool is going to be this year, and we need to get a little bit of a better context to see where you fall in this pool. Uh, how strong is the rest of the pool going to be? And in some ways, yeah, that, that's a little disappointing. It, it's a, a sort of a backhanded way of saying, well, you weren't the very top of the applicant pool. But again, it means you're in the running. They need to see what the rest of the application pool looks like. So they're not going to be picking that file back up until they've had a chance to really dive more deeply into the rest of the regular decision pool. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just I think that it's um, it can be helpful, by the way, to to talk to the schools about their policies. Like it's interesting because Georgetown and Boston College for example, are both very clear that they only take the top of the pool early action. And so being deferred, you really do still have a really good chance of getting in. Right. Um, whereas if you're applying early decision someplace, yeah, you've been deferred, but it might be worth it for you to find out sort of like, what are the odds really if an early decision candidate has been deferred um, of getting in? Um, but I, you know, I bring up Georgetown and, and, and Boston College because they in particular, I've really seen multiple times defer candidates who they then end up admitting. Um, mm-hmm. But they're very strict and very selective in their early pools. Sure, sure. I'll say that at all the schools I worked at, we definitely would admit a percentage of the students who we deferred. Uh, it would depend on the year, of course, how uh, how close were we in, in sort of guessing as to what the rest of the pool would look like as to was it a large percentage of the students who were deferred or just a small. But you are certainly still in the running. You always have a chance. If they knew they were going to deny you, they would have just gone ahead and denied you in regular decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So what about, I mean, do we take any bit of a, we've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of a reach school, don't freak out, don't change your list. I wonder if we want to elaborate a little bit more about 
kind of just right and no, like, what if you yeah. got deferred? What if you got deferred from a school you actually thought was a safety? I mean, I again, I talked about this a little bit in in that earlier radio show, but I think it's worth discussing a little bit more here. Like, what do you do if you're deferred from that no problem school? Sure. Sure. No problem in just right schools, I think, often these days are trying to get a better handle on who is going to accept our offer of admission. And if we have no indication uh, that you seem at all really that interested in our school, if we get the feeling, you know what, we're probably a safety school for this student, they don't seem all that interested, we're in their backyard and they haven't even visited us, well, we might then defer you to sort of gauge your interest. Do they send anything in? Uh, do they demonstrate any sort of interest in our school, any sort of indication that they're likely to accept our offer of admission? And we would do that often. I'd say at Fordham, this is a school that receives, when I left, 44,000 applications. Uh, and a huge percentage of those were coming in from the, the New York metro area, the New Jersey suburbs, Westchester suburbs. And students seem to often apply without really giving giving much consideration. And if they hadn't visited, that was something we took into consideration. Not the same way that we would consider a student from California or from abroad who hadn't visited, but you're in our backyard and you haven't taken a tour. Hmm, okay, well, how interested are you really in our school? Not to say that we wouldn't still admit plenty of students who hadn't visited, but Definitely something that we took into consideration. So if this is a school that you thought, gosh, you know, I really thought this was a slam dunk or at minimum a match, reevaluate your approach with the school. Have you visited before? Have you expressed any interest? Have you met with an admission counselor when they came to your school? Is there any way left at this point for you to demonstrate some additional uh, interest beyond just sending a love letter? But it's certainly not too late to take a tour, to reach out to that admission officer uh, with a question as a way to sort of demonstrate that interest that, you know what, this is a school that I am seriously considering that can go a long way uh, to help the school understand that you are still interested. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Tova. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sally. All right. And thanks to Marie Schwartz from Teen Life and Tara Piantanita Kelly for being my guest today. Now I want to tell you about our show next week, hosted by my colleague, Beth Heaton. She'll be discussing whether or not a student should consider a gap year, and we'll also be answering listener questions regarding admission and financing a college education. It really should be a great show. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find last week's show on what makes for a good leadership experience in college from an expert on MBA admission. So what do you have to do when you're in college to get your MBA? Um, You'll also find it, it also covered saving for college for parents of high school students and a discussion on Columbia's supplemental essay questions. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget... We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.